G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. We want to embed in your lives a way of doing Christian community life together that looks plausible and that looks a better alternative to what's going on. And so you've got to have relationships over time that are thick enough to carry you through difficult times. The church used to be recognised as a force for good, but this is changing rapidly. Christians are now often seen as the bad guys, losing both respect and influence. Our guest today is pastor and author Stephen Melkalpine. He wrote Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. We'll be discussing how our culture ended up this way and some of the key points of tension between biblical Christianity and secular culture. That's Stephen Melkalpine, our guest today with my wife Kate and myself Brett Ryan, the folks on the family, Australia. Well, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. I'm really excited about this because I've actually read your book in my men's group and we did it in a book club and so have the author right in front of us because it actually opened up lots of questions, not having all the answers, but actually gave us some challenging thoughts. So let's find out a little bit about Stephen Melkopine first, and then we'll get into the thick of it. So what's your background? Uh, Look, born in Northern Ireland, so a migrant to Australia and bounced back and forth a little bit. Christian family upbringing, very staunch Northern Irish sort of Protestants. Lived in Australia most of my life. Uh, and my parents divorced when I was 17. I have a twin brother, an identical twin brother. And so that was a big moment for us. Went through uni, did literature and journalism and sort of fell into doing ministry stuff. And I've been pastoring in churches for 25 years, not doing that currently at the moment. Married to a clinical psychologist who's also a migrant. So we're both migrant families, start again people as you come to a country, which means you don't have cousins. You don't have extended family. Mm-hmm. So we both were families that had to forge your own thing in Perth. Uh, But my wife and I both went to the same school as new migrants, but wouldn't have ever met each other for another 10 years. Right. Yeah. But you collided, fell in love. Yep. Got married. Yeah. Kids. Yeah. I have a nearly 23-year-old daughter and a 20, uh, 20, a 15-year-old son. Wish he was 20. That means I could uh, probably get him (laughs) out of school by now. Uh, (laughs) We're going into year 11 and 12 with him. So my daughter uh, works part-time for a church and studies full-time. So she works for a church which shows that being a pastor's kid didn't exactly traumatize her. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. encouraging. It's not a casualty. So, no. Yeah. And my son is the exact opposite of me. Doesn't like the limelight, doesn't like uh, sort of being upfront about anything, and literature and English would be his least favorite subject. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so you've used all those skills as a journalist, hmm. and you're a writer, obviously, of, of books and, and a blog site, and you're brain thinks differently than us mere mortals uh, about some of the deeper things. Hmm. And in my opening introduction, we talked about the cultural change. So where did it all go wrong? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I think as a pastor, it was noticing that people were finding their relationships in work and in uni and school and friendships 
much more bracing in how people were having conversations with them about what they believed and why Christianity was not simply silly but might be unsafe or dangerous Mm -hmm. in its ideas around what it means to be human. The sexuality gender issue is obviously the presenting issue culturally at the moment. And if you go back, you think, well, most people's view hasn't come from the French philosophers of 200 years ago. It's not like everyone's sitting reading Rousseau Mm. about you know, man is Why born not? for, you know, of course, you know, <laughs> as I, I don't even think I do these days. Um, but the ideas have filtered from high culture to popular culture about what it means to be human. So you're watching Frozen or you're watching mm. any other movie and its premise is follow your heart, be who you want to be, be, be you. you. Yeah, yeah, be you, exactly. You are your own God. Yes, your own God. And they won't even use the word God, they say you do you. Yeah. And that's that slogan. And you think- that didn't come out of nowhere. That came out of a framework of thinking about what it means to be human. It's not even that you could recite that mantra. It's just in the water. It's just in the air. It's mm-hmm. what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary, what you can mm. conceive to be possible about how reality is put together. I think that's what happens, and it's not as if Christians are immune to that either because we all swim in the same I was going to say we're all water. human. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And from that point of view, we see that used to be that the Christian influence was far greater in our culture and our society. Marriages were longer lasting and being together, the family unit. And then we're seeing that change. And it's only been really in the last 20 or 30 years that we've seen a significant change in that time. So what worked really well for many, 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 many years has now changed dramatically. Mm. And so- Help us understand that part of our history. Yes, that's a really good question and a good thought. Uh, Dale Kuhn has written a book called Sex and the I World, and he talks about the T world, the traditional world of the past, which Christianity sat well within and also influenced very strongly, though it wasn't only Christian because there are lots of traditional cultures around the world at the moment. (laughs) But the core belief of the traditional world was relationships of mutual obligation that you do your relationships within a network of community and things like that, and you have obligations to other people within your network, to to spouse, to children, to wider family, to the village, to the town, to whatever. And he said that's been replaced by what he calls the I world, which speaks for itself, really, what it means, which are relationships of personal choice. So marriage, for example, has sat in the relationship of obligation under covenant especially Christianly, mm. for you know, 2,000 years. And before that, in the, the Jewish scriptures, which are our scriptures, and before that, it's a pre-government idea. Mm-hmm. It's a God-given idea. Yeah. And now marriage sits in the realm of personal choice, the I world, where Justice Kennedy of the Supreme Court of the United States of America said the point of marriage is that you want to be able to call out and someone answers and responds to you. So he says marriage is a response to a fear that we might be alone, and that's a personal choice issue, whereas the Bible would say marriage isn't something that we create from ground up but is given to us Mm. and we work it out. So that's the difference between a relationship of mutual obligation because you could break your obligations, but there would be penalty for that, whether that's social penalty or whatever. But you can break your relationships now on the basis of personal choice and be celebrated for it yeah. because you're being your true self. Yeah. That's the water we swim in. And you can see why that puts relationships 
under a lot of pressure. Yeah, and the domino effect that is children are yeah. the collateral damage and all of that. Yeah, and well. we can rewrite the narrative for that because you see it all the time. My kids will be happier if we're not together. That's not true. All the stats say it's not true, mm. but you don't have to tell the stats. The stats won't create the social imaginary. The movies which show that, the books that are written about it, the articles that espouse that idea will be more enforcing in people's thinking than dusty scientific psychological stats that yeah. say the opposite. Yeah, the influential social media. That's right. That social media is a critical issue in that. And it's mm. also, we, you know, it was at, um, I think it was Grant Donovan who was a science fiction writer who said, we live inside the stories we tell ourselves. Oh, yeah, the narrative. Yeah, so we create the narrative, then we live in that, and then we assume it's truth. Uh, and so it works, it's got this symbiotic relationship mm. that builds up, I think. The sad indictment of saying that, that marriages, if you call out, someone will answer you. Mm. Such a limiting statement around what can be a very beautiful, you know, commitment for life. And the world that's telling the young people that if you're not happy, then get out. And they're not getting in at the moment, actually. There's the great irony. Well, they're not committing. Yeah, they're not committing yeah. at all. I think the latest statistics is about 88% of couples choose to live together mm. in Australia rather than getting married. But then in the background, that's creating anxiety. Mm. And they don't realise that because at any point, someone's just going to walk, walk out the door. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's interesting that to actually make a vow in front of someone, regardless of whether you believe in spiritual vows or not, actually has a binding aspect to it in yeah. a way that you don't understand fully, I think, until you try to break them, right? Yeah. Mm. And I think that's critical. And young people are going, well, why would I get married and why would I have children? So what you're finding, and Mary Eberstadt has said that you become more religious by having more kids. It's not that people with more kids are more religious. It actually works the other way around, statistically, she says, right. mm. that it changes your framework of thinking about what human flourishing is about. Mm. If you have children, it softens your understanding of your own self and mm. knocks yeah. your selfishness to the yeah. corner. Oh, I mean, absolutely. You know, as, you know, or else it doesn't, and then you've got problems. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly, and yeah. it is the perfect environment when you have got kids to deal with your issues because… Exposes them. It, it absolutely <laughs> exposes and them, yeah. and what it does is either you deal with them or you pass your issues to your children. Yeah. And so it's very confronting, but it is… The best gift. Hmm. It's like they say children learn from their parents, but the parents definitely learn from their kids. Well, yeah. you can't book a psych session these days because it's booked out. Yeah, absolutely. And if the culture was knocking it out of the park, then that wouldn't be one of the symptoms. Clearly no. something's going on. And my wife is a clinical psychologist. Yeah. yeah. And I cheekily say, you can say what you like about the sexual revolution, but it's built us a nice house. Because, you know, it's in the yeah. sense that you're booked out all the time. Mm. It's a... If you want to be a clinical psychologist in Australia today, you will never be out of work because mm. the anxiety levels are off the charts. Yeah, very and much so. a lot of that has to do with who am I, where am I supposed to be? And if you want to break down relationships of mutual obligation and societies that have them, one of the costs is this deep fragility. I'm my own person and I'm supposed to carve out my own life, but it's failing. That means the only person to blame is myself. And yeah. so you have this one level denial and then despair. I was going to say that they don't like to blame themselves. It's always somebody else's. If You've it, got to put it in a culture else. of 
mm. me first, yeah. it's always someone else's fault. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's so many different issues we mm. could go on, lots of tangents. We could also focus just on all the negative things in our culture, toxic masculinity, the gender ideology. I think our listeners are aware of all the challenges, mm. but if a parent is listening to this now, a Christian parent, for example, what could they be doing? What's something that needs to be done that they should take responsibility, the awesome privilege it is to be a parent, but also the importance of discipling their young people while they have that influence, because if they don't do it, society will. That's right. You can't outsource discipleship Mm. as a family. So you can't outsource it to the church. You can't outsource it to youth group. You can't outsource it to the Christian school because you're both too busy working full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. Even if you are working full-time jobs, you've got to find a way to disciple your own children because the family is the deepest formation project currently around, which is why I think, perversely, it's being torn down because it shapes you. It's what we call a mediating institution that the only, what we call mediating institutions are those sort of grassroots up things that happen in our society, which mediate the individual from raw state power. Mm. And the family is a little political system in some senses of its own Mm. make. And it's so important that Your kids are being discipled by their iPhone and by their peers anyway. There's no non-discipling going on. Mm. So for me, even just my parents divorced when I was 17 and my dad left my mum. The ripple effect, even though many years later my dad came back to repent and apologise to my mum, too late, you know, he'd been married again and more Mm -hmm. kids. And the ripple effect of that has spread through generation, the next two generations. You can't undo that stone throw into the pond. And it's a deep discipling moment. Now, that could have pushed us one way or the other. For me, what happened was that some older blokes who were around my dad's age stepped into the breach a little bit from church yeah. to help. Wonderful. And I think that's what needs to happen. Yes. But you, I, I want to say that kids watch their parents and then they watch their parents being friends with other people and watch how they disciple each other, especially in church, how families disciple together. Yeah. And it could be as easy as getting around the table, having a meal and putting your phones to the side and saying to the parents, let's talk about how we're navigating the phone thing with our kids. Yeah. What's helpful for you? What's not helpful? Why do we always say we're bored? You know, I'm tired. Just go on your device. And how do we navigate that? What's healthy? What's not? Because yeah. I think parents feel isolated. Yeah, very much so. That's Stephen Malcalpine, our guest today with my wife, Kate, myself, Brett Ryan, for Focus on the Family, Australia. The Word for Today is Australia's most widely read daily devotional, designed to give you practical teaching to keep you focused on your relationship with Jesus. Read it online or subscribe to the free printed edition at thewordfortoday.com.au. Welcome back. We're speaking with Stephen Malcalpine, our guest today. He's the author of the book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. And you're listening to Focus on the Family, Australia. Stephen, I was actually looking at your book and you talk about thick discipleship. Um, In my mind, I imagine, you know, meaning deeper, greater depth. Uh, A lot of people tend to live in this mile-wide, inch-deep kind of knowledge or understanding of something. Can you kind of explain that to me or to us? Yeah, look, I I think at two levels, you've got a 
a society that's very busy and a social media setting that rewards bad behaviour. So clickbait headlines, things mm-hmm. that are shocking. You shape your technology and then it shapes you. Yeah. And so you forms that algorithm yeah. yeah. and you think everyone thinks that way. Exactly. Yeah. And so you go to Amazon, it says people who bought this book also buy these six books, where you kind of want people who bought this book never buy these six books because mm. you want to read something a little, well, it's different to what I'm reading. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so what you get is time means people skim things. They don't go very deeply on things. And learning itself has become a pragmatic exercise in order to get the job you need or achieve something mm. or mm-hmm. – uh, and books on self-help are all about that. How can you craft yourself at a level to get what you want? Mm. And that's part of the problem, I think. And so it's very thin. People are time poor. Yeah. Sometimes it's by choice they choose yeah. to be time poor. Reality yeah. is that they're busy yeah. and doing lots of stuff. Yeah. So what I think too, that if churches say we want to dial down how busy we are and you want to reach people, you're still reaching people who are time poor. And what I would say is thick discipleship for me is saying, you're not going to keep people Christian, earthly speaking, young people, by evangelical light program of chubby bunnies or whatever it is. You know? Yes. You've got to say there's something- Don't forget the smoke machine. The smoke machine and chubby bunnies go together very well. There you go. And uh, you, you want to say, we want to embed in your lives a way of doing community life together and Christian community life together that looks plausible yeah. and that looks a better alternative to what's going on. That's good. And so you've got to have relationships over time that are thick enough to carry you through difficult times. And I think young people are struggling with it, but partly because older people, their parents, haven't realized that. So as a pastor, one of the things I really got frustrated with was meeting 50-year-olds who'd had three teenagers in tow who were coming to my church, having been to six other churches in the last 15 years. That's you know, a church change every couple of years. And their kids are looking horrified going, here we go again. Yeah. And they've got no thick relationships. They've got no depth. And they're having to restart everything again somewhere else. And partly that's because consumer choice has hit their parents. Yeah. Mm. Right? So you can sign off on every creed and being baptized and take communion every week in good conscience. But if you are chopping and changing all the time, you're just as much a consumer rather than a disciple. So I want to change consumers into disciples. And you only do that over time together. And I think church has to find a way to say to people, and I think it's the gospel, how big God is, who he is, what he's done for us. Because the bad life won't take your young people away from Jesus any more than the good life. Yeah. And if you're saying, well, we'll come to church once every three weeks, we've got the weekend or the other weekend, Uh, we've got three sports and two music activities, you're crafting a vision of the good life that could frame God out and it could still keep going for a long time very well. What's that quote? Um, What we see as optional, Optional. our children will see as unnecessary. Yeah, and that's that's where we're at, I think. And and if you think of consumer, everything's optional to a consumer Mm. because they get to decide. Because we've gone from the day where you could even say, actually, you should be in church everywhere. We're almost afraid to say that because it sounds legalistic, but it's not. No. I think, though, you need to have a strong covenant view of each other as a church, that you're a body, yeah. that you'll stay together long enough to have kids together, problems together, problem-solving issues together, marriages that are struggling together, yeah. all those things together. There's something that togetherness of it over a long period of time and is just remember, all our listeners, there are no perfect churches. Despite no. it, you want it to <laughs> be. When you walk through those doors, 
you've actually made it imperfect because we are imperfect beings. Yeah. But I do agree that the fact is that, you know, if it's not a priority for you as, yeah. a, as a parent, your kids are going to say, well, it's not a priority for mum and dad. It's n- not necessarily a, yeah. an option for me. They've done a bit of research that says that a young person will stay connected to a church if more than six adults know their name. That's a great piece of research. And I think it looked my daughter at university uh, said that her friends who are mostly not Christian are all over the place relationally and don't quite know who they are. So the irony for my daughter is that you've got this bright world offering its wares and here's how you can do relationships. And she goes, oh, I'm, I'm good, thanks. My relationships, I've known these bunch of girls for a long time at church. The older girls have looked after us. The families yeah, spend time so together. Good. You know, what have you got that I haven't already got better? Yeah. And so we don't need to be apologists as Christians for what family life in church looks like mm. because yeah. it's knocking it out of the park compared to out there. Yeah. And no amount of advertising campaigns will change that reality. Am I daughter's friends are a little bit inquisitive as to why my daughter's relational life is so thick and so varied Mm. relationally, older people, younger people, families. Yeah, well, I think it's a good message for older people to understand that they're not obsolete. Yes. uh, That young people do want to be seen by them and that they are cared for by them, that they're not seen as, oh, the Mm. youth. No. We don't – I mean, now that I'm no longer young – we don't view people that way. And no. I remember when my parents uh, did split up, it was older men in the church who filled the void yeah. and helped and in that setting. that's excellent, isn't it? And yeah. that's why the body of Christ should work yeah. and function at its best, mm-hmm. at its ideal. When we do that, we can do great things. You mentioned uh, before about the good life, mm-hmm. how it can be a threat. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Because that's easily a, an obvious distraction in our culture today. Yeah, and we slide. Yeah, we do. And look, uh, Jesus gave the parable of the sower, and there were four soils, and that hasn't changed. There's the soil of, you know, the word is sown, and it's taken away immediately. And then you get the soil, it's the rocky ground, which is, that's the bad life, right? Persecution, trouble on account of the word, being a Christian, you're unsafe, you're a bad guy. But the third soil is the weeds that choke the good seed, and it's the lure of wealth, the desire for other things, the good life. Yeah. Other things that are good, but they're created things, and we make them ultimate things. Mm. And how we show our families what we think is ultimately good will shape them far more than the sermon they get to every three weeks or the youth group event. How we show them what we think matters. Yeah. It is absolutely critical. And Jesus said there's been no other responses to the gospel other than outright rejection, start well, trouble, start well, good, or else flourish yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, time is getting the better of us, and we would love to have you back in the studio for another chat because we're finding this excellent. Mm-hmm. But I just want to give a little bit of a challenge. If you could imagine the church and our culture in 30 years' time, how could we do better in 30 years' time to improve the disintegration of the church and the importance of community in 2053-54? Yeah. I think one of the things would be theologically, uh, your teaching program, whether it's your preaching, whatever, has got to show that God is better than any other option and also that the Christian life is not about glory now. It's about suffer now, glory later. At the same time, There's a deep joy 
in following Jesus. Mm. That yeah. is not there in the world. So I think if we we're able to show that over the next 30 years, and then as a church, I think create more white space. We're very busy in church. We've got a lot of options on the table because we think that's how consumers work. But if we dialed that down over the next 30 years where we said turning up week in, week out is 80% of what's going to keep you Christian mm. because it will shape and change you beyond what you know. Just like every meal that you eat, even though you can't remember every meal, mm. has shaped you for yeah. good or ill. <laughs> and uh, the other thing I'd say is you want to say the next 30 years, Christians will find themselves having to spend more time together in deep community because there'll be more fractured community. Mm. The other thing I'd uh, is if just off the bat, right? Forgiveness is falling off the radar in our culture. It's mm. a cancel culture. Tim Keller's last book was called Forgive. How can I and why should I? Our mm. culture no longer believes that we should have to forgive. It says just do someone in, right? Yeah. And so a forgiving culture in church will mean that we at church will deal with our issues in a biblical way. We won't just sit Mrs. Jones 100 seats away from Mrs. Smith because they can't get on. Yeah. We'll say we'll lean into those things as a church and we'll kind of ensure that we believe that there's an invisible reality that shapes our visible reality at church. I think if we dialed up the difference between us and the world, that wouldn't be a bad thing. If we did forgiveness the way God teaches us to, there'd be restoration. Oh, 100%. Because it comes yeah. down to humility and pride. Yeah, and if someone comes to our church who is broken from unforgiveness and says to us, how do you Christians do forgiveness? And we say, just the same as you. We've got a problem. Mm. And if they come to us and say, how do you do money? And we say, just the same as you, we've got a problem. Yeah. So in order to do our evangelism well and be a witness to the world, we have to dial up the difference, I think. That's yeah, great. And, yeah, we have to role model it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Well, we have loved this conversation and it has been so thought provoking. And I'm sure that our listeners have really enjoyed it. And we look forward to having you as a guest once again. Great. Thanks very much. It's been great. Our guest today is Stephen Malkalpine. He's a pastor and author of Being the Bad Guys. To find out more, you can go to his blog site, stephenmalkalpine.com. And thanks for joining us today. We hope this program has helped challenge you about faith and how to be more confident facing some of the issues within our culture. For more resources on family and relationships, go to our website at families.org.au. On behalf of Kate and the rest of the team, I'm Brett Ryan, inviting you to tune in to another edition on the family, Australia. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.